welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. The presenting sponsor of today's podcast is LiveRays. It's a new live streaming app where we're going to be taking our streams, and you can find it in the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, and at LiveRays.com. Just look us up at Millen Politics, or you can find us by searching Millennial Politics to never miss one of our live streams. On the fun news side, we're going to be at the Arena Summit in Phoenix this weekend, and we'll be live streaming as many sessions as we can. The Arena is working to build the next generation of political leaders, and we'll be bringing you some of the content if you can't make it out there. And then lastly, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Millen Politics. And of course, we got to plug it, buy our merchandise in our store. Every dollar goes to supporting our mission. All right, we've got a great show today. I'm Nathan Rubin, joined by Dylan Christine. Hey, Dylan. Hi, Nathan. How are you doing today? I'm good. Happy December to all of our listeners. We've made it this far. Happy <laughs> December. Trump presidency. It's crazy to believe. We're going to be walking through a little bit of the tax bill in the news of the weekend. And a little bit later, we're going to be speaking with Dan Cannon, a former civil rights attorney who's running for Congress in Indiana. Let's go ahead and dive right in. This was a very news heavy weekend. What do you think of this tax bill disaster? Uh, I think it's a disaster. <laughs> There's just a lot of rhetorical games going on and the Republicans want to lie their way out of this one. And hopefully our podcast can be a part of fighting against that and really telling people what's in this bill. It's not for the middle class. It's for Trump. It's for his cronies. It's for the 1%. And we need to do whatever we can to try to make sure it does not become law. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that. What actually was in the bill? So everything in the bill is basically bringing on taxes or getting rid of deductions that we would say probably work for the middle class. So we're looking at higher taxes on college students, graduate students, um, where they're pulling out potentially the deduction for teachers when they buy supplies for their classrooms, right? Things that when you're looking at a bill, you're not going to say, wow, that teacher deduction, I think it's $250 per teacher. Like, that's really... What's it's just causing this? cold-blooded. It's like it cold-hearted. It's sinister. This bill also repeals the individual mandate as part of the Health Care Act. So really, this is no longer a tax bill, but it also became a health care bill. I'm not sure this got so much attention, but they actually slipped a clause in there to the pleasure of Mike Pence, I, I bet, that fetuses now have personhood. So this tax bill became a health care bill. And it became an abortion bill. Right. Yeah. So I think what, when people are thinking about the ACA, we think a lot about the subsidies, which are obviously extremely important. But I think we need to remember that the individual mandate is really one of the key pillars that the ACA stands on. Because when we think about the individual mandate and how we enforce that is to make sure that the pool of people getting insurance ranges from the very healthy to the very sick, because it's when we have that wide range of people that we can help balance out the cost. Because if we only have very sick people or people who need health insurance in the market, that's going to mean that their health insurance is more expensive, as is natural with just the insurance markets. And if they are the only part of that, they're going to bring down the cost. And that's when we talk about a debt spiral or some other spiraling of the ACA, that's what we're talking about. We need I don't want to say cheaper people, but cheaper plans, which healthier people are paying into to try to balance that out. And let's talk a little bit about process here, because these guys, Republicans move at 
sloth speed when it comes to gun control, when it comes to really any other aspect of legislation. The Senate claims to be the most deliberative body um, when it comes to debating legislation. But here, under cover of darkness, they were literally passing legislation with handwritten notes in the margins. What's up with that? I think we've seen over the past year that all of the um, moral grandstanding that Republicans in both the House and the Senate were doing during the Obama years was nothing more than just partisan bull. Like there's there's absolutely no other way to do it. When they talked about process, when they talked about you know bipartisan attempts, right? They railed on the ACA for years about how it was partisan legislation that was jammed through. Yet the ACA took over a year to pass with hearings and amendments and all of these things. So I think this really needs to resonate with the American people that it was it's just partisan nonsense and that they don't care about process. They don't care about the American people. They obviously don't care about the debt because they're going to explode the debt, I think, by 1.5 trillion dollars. Trillion. And just, by, and just by bringing the corporate income tax up from 20 to 25 percent, we could help cut some of the ballooning of the debt out. We would be able to put more money towards other social programs. Like this is showing us laying bare exactly what the Republicans care about. And it's about their donors. This is about what their donors want. This is about reelection. This is about power. This is not about the American people. This is not about any sort of values that they claim to be standing for. And when we take a step back and think about the broader issues at hand, Flint, Michigan still does not have clean water. Puerto Rico still does not have power. And here we are giving the largest tax cut in U.S. history to millionaires and billionaires saying, here, take our money because we trust that you will trickle it down to the rest of us. When literally every single piece of evidence and analysis says the exact opposite. These folks are going to hoard that money. They're going to fuel stock buybacks with the corporations. They're going to stash this money overseas. We will not see a penny. I also want to plug that um, Jane Pauley interviewed Warren Buffett on Sunday morning this morning and asked him about trickle-down economics and asked him about you know this crazy reduction in the corporate um, tax rate. And he basically said, that's nonsense. Right? It's like, a scam. Is, it exactly. doesn't work. Exactly. All right. So you don't okay. have to just believe us. You can believe Warren Buffett. He's an expert. I'd say right. he knows a thing or two about, about the markets and corporations and, and how money flows. Okay. Let's turn to who actually voted for this bill. Because the way that it broke down, all but one Republican voted for this bill and not a single Democrat voted for it. So if anyone ever tells you that both parties are the same, you can kindly point them point them to the vote totals for this bill. Um, who are some of the vulnerable 2018 Republicans that we can really make this come back to bite them? So we have both Jeff Flake from Arizona and Bob Corker from Tennessee, although they're both retiring. So while this may not be an issue of making them fearful about their next election, there's definitely an opening for people in those states to determine the outcome of the upcoming election and to say and, that this is not an acceptable thing that we want in our next legislator that we're and, voting And for. just to clarify, Bob Corker actually voted against the bill. He was the single Republican oh, right, to right. vote against it. However, he voted for it to get it out of committee. 
And that was a big mistake in my opinion. Yeah. And then we're also looking at Orrin Hatch from Utah, Dirty Dean Heller from Nevada. That's Dirty I think Dean. that's going to be one of the probably, I think they're saying that one of the tightest races that we're looking at, one of the most vulnerable. So people in Nevada, we're looking at you. And then Ted Cruz The most hated man in the Senate. <laughs> Ted Cruz from Texas already yeah. has a challenger, Beto O'Rourke. Check him out. He's a real stud doing great things. <laughs> He's a congressman. He can beat Ted Cruz, but we got to make it happen. Yeah, who doesn't want Ted Cruz out of the Senate? I feel like I think even does. Republicans want Ted Cruz out of the Senate. Well, I know that like Al Franken is sort of on shaky ground right now, but a couple of months ago, um, he was talking about Ted Cruz and he said he thinks he likes Ted Cruz the most out of anyone in the Senate and he effing hates Ted Cruz. So like that should tell you something. Well, that's quite an endorsement. So next steps for this bill, now that the House has passed a tax cut, the Senate has passed a tax cut. Two different pieces of legislation, but on the same topic. Now the bill goes to conference. That means that folks from the Senate come together with folks in the House, and they need to produce a bill that is amenable to both chambers. So once they find that agreed upon piece of legislation, it would go back to the House for a vote and the Senate for a vote, which means we still have a chance to stop this bill. Only after it's passed both chambers of Congress will it go to President Trump's desk to be signed into law. So Dylan, what can people do? Call your House members. I know we tweeted out, I think two days ago, but we'll probably tweet it out again. Uh, ben Winkler from moveon.org sent out a picture of the Republican House members who did not vote for the ACA repeal when we were involved in that battle earlier this year, but did vote for the tax bill. Now that that's, this new Senate bill has the repeals the ACA mandate in there, it looks like there might be some room to pressure some House members. I know personally my House member is on that list. I called his office on Friday. Members of my household will also be calling on Monday. Um, so we need to make sure that the House sees how we feel about this bill and how unpopular it is and that when they are up for re-election next year this is going to be an issue and we are going to make them pay for this bill. we should make every single elected official who voted for this either in the house or the senate own this vote every single day we should bring it up all right that's all we got for this tax scam bill Keep calling your representatives, keep calling your senators, make your voice heard on social media, um, interact with us. We would love to, to, have, to hear your ideas of how we can continue to organize. Um, stick around. We've got a great interview with Dan Cannon coming right up. I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics, and today I'm joined by Dan Cannon, Civil Rights Attorney and Democratic Candidate for Indiana's 9th Congressional District. Thanks for coming on, Dan. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Could you tell us a little bit about your background as a civil rights attorney? So I didn't exactly get there in a conventional way. You know, I was raised in rural Indiana by a, a single mom, working class mom. I 
dropped out of high school when I was 17. I put myself through college. I'm the first person in my family to graduate from college. During my experience in college, that was when the George W. Bush years were happening. We were sort of telling each other that uh, nothing worse could ever happen to American politics, right, than George W. Bush. Uh, and it seems, you know, like a quaint notion now. But um, yeah, that's when I really got involved in activism and caring about politics and caring about, you know, the world as a, as a whole and things bigger than myself. And when I graduated from college, I was looking for something more to do for my community and ways that I could sort of expand my activism. And so I decided to go to law school. I don't think that I'd ever actually had a conversation with a lawyer. I mean, I just didn't know anything about the professional class at all. Uh, didn't know anything about that culture. Didn't know anything about, you know, like hiring a lawyer for me in my, you know, in my 20s would have been just a ridiculous idea. I, I had this notion that every time you pick up the phone and call a lawyer, it's going to cost you a thousand bucks. I mean, I just never had any contact with those folks. But I got through law school and then I went to work for a small plaintiff's firm, you know, which is not something that I really expected I would end up doing. I kind of thought that I would work for a nonprofit organization or something like that, but but discovered that I really liked being a trial attorney and doing employment discrimination cases, so race discrimination, sex discrimination, sexual harassment, all that good stuff. Um, in an employment context, always representing employees against corporations, against big business, and I like doing the David versus Goliath stuff. That eventually parlayed itself into more what we would call constitutional work, so First Amendment type cases, inmates' rights cases. I've been in just about every jail and prison in the region here you know, police brutality cases, uh, that sort of thing. Being branded as a civil rights attorney, there aren't too many of us in my area. So that sort of branding as a civil rights attorney is part of why I got involved in the marriage equality cases, which I think is probably about the most high profile thing that I've been involved in. The Obergefell case that went to the United States Supreme Court. I was lead counsel for the Kentucky plaintiffs in that case, and we filed the first marriage case in, in Indiana. Um, and then right from that, we went to representing the couples that were plaintiffs in the Kim Davis case. If folks remember that, that's the county clerk out in eastern Kentucky that refused to uh, issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Um, and that's a battle that still rages on. We also sued Donald Trump before it was cool to sue Donald Trump, although I don't know, maybe maybe it was always cool, I don't know. But, you know, we sued him over, over violence at uh, one of his rallies where he ordered a seething mob of white supremacists to attack my black client who was there to peacefully protest. Um, and that was all over the news. And that is a battle that still rages on. And, you know, so that's, that's some of the more high profile stuff that I've been involved in. But, you know, I, I've always worked on the sort of David versus Goliath type cases where I'm, I'm representing somebody who wouldn't otherwise have a voice within the justice system and, and trying to give them that voice and make sure that we can get whatever measure of justice we can for those folks. You've said before that you never planned to run for office. What brought you to the point where you are today on the incredible Millennial Politics podcast talking about your candidacy <laughs> for Congress? Well, I mean, and um, this is the high point of my career, too. It's a matter of taking stock of where we are after 2016. And I think a, a lot of people had the sentiment that they needed to do more than what they were doing. And so in my district, we've seen lots of people that have never been politically engaged before, people you know, so in some cases that have never even voted before, that all of a sudden they're like, oh, we've got to grab the reins on American democracy, you know, frankly, and, and do something about this, or at least do more than what it is we were doing before. And I, I think that's happened at all levels of activism. You know, when you're a lawyer that cares about social issues and you care about your community and you care about, the, you know, not just the stuff that makes the news every day, but the stuff that goes on in the shadows too, which is kind of what, what lawyers are involved with a lot of times. People 
people ask you to run and sort of expect you to want to get involved in politics at some point along the way? Uh, and I always sort of resisted that because I, I just haven't led a normal politician's life. Um, and I think whatever you think about 2016 and what happened there, it was a referendum on, on the status quo. I think that people don't want politics as usual. People don't want sort of regular status quo politicians to represent them. And I'm not that. And that combined with the fact that I, like everybody else, perceive the need to to step up and do a little bit more for my community and my friends and family in the wake of 2016. And this is something that I can do. So the pinned tweet on your personal account reads, quote, we can be incremental in our methods, but we must be revolutionary in our aspirations. How would this philosophy affect your approach to legislating in Congress? It's an approach that affects the way in which you talk about politics and the way in which you talk about what we expect America to be in the future more than it affects day-to-day legislation. I think you know, it affects both. There's there's a growing sense, I think, among people who are actually engaged in America that, you know, we've got to do something different. We've got to take things in a different direction. We've got to make some progress, and we've got to take the reins to be able to do that. We don't want to be in a state you know, 25 years from now of where people are still dying and going bankrupt because they can't pay medical bills. We don't want to be, you know, lagging behind the rest of the developed world 25 years from now. We don't want to have lots of people without jobs or without meaningful wages 25 years from now. So I think it's really important to give people a target to shoot at and to say, you know, look, this is where we're going. In 10 and 15 and 25 years, we're going to have, you know, we're going to bridge the wealth gap. In 10, 15, 25 years, we're going to, you know, have strategies implemented to take care of income inequality and to uh, get paid family medical leave and to achieve universal health care and all the good stuff that the working classes of the nation deserve. How we get there is another matter. And I think that that is the sort of drudgery of day-to-day legislative work. If you look at the success of the Sanders campaign, if you look at the success of other progressive politicians that have, you know, recently enjoyed success in the last year or so, they all have one common theme, and it's that we're not just looking at the next increment. We're not just looking at the next little baby step that we're going to take as a country. We're actually setting goals for what the future of America looks like and what we can achieve here in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. I think it's really important to express that to people. Say, look, you know, we have a vision for the future. We have a positive agenda. This is the direction we're going in. And we'll figure out how we're going to get there as we go. So speaking of the Sanders campaign, since Bernie Sanders broke into the political mainstream, we've seen an increased support for single-payer health care. You have an approach to single-payer that's very pragmatic, more so than what we've seen Bernie Sanders propose. Can you explain your plan to achieve single-payer? Um, we need to get there however we can get there. And again, you know, it goes back to what, what you had asked me about before in terms of being you know, incremental in our methodology, but but revolutionary in our aspirations. We, we need to tell people and be very clear that we're shooting for a, a single payer system or at least a system under which people can get health care as a matter of, of it being a basic human right rather than a luxury good for a privileged few. That's that's the most important thing that we can do. I mean, how we get there is, I, I think, less important than telling people, like, look, this is where we're going, and we're going to get there um, somehow, right? In my view, I think we can, we can phase in a Medicare for all system over time. We can do this incrementally. We can do it, you know, in sort of a, a, a phased approach. It, 
needs to happen quickly, for sure. But, you know, I think part of what a lot of the criticism that Bernie Sanders got, rightly or wrongly, was that people assumed that that his approach was just to pull the rug out from underneath the system that we have. And today we have a sixth of the economy wrapped up in, in health care and its associated costs. And we're just going to, you know, tomorrow we're going to have a single payer system and the insurance industry is going to be gone. And a lot of people saw that as being unrealistic. You know, I think a, a gradually expanded Medicare program is is one way that we can get there, but we can start exploring those different ways as we go. I mean, the most important thing is that, you know, and I, and I support HR 676. I mean, I support any bill that's going to get us close to a single-payer system where people don't have to, to go bankrupt and die because they can't pay a medical bill. It, but I, I also want to be very clear that I'll support anything that works, including the stones and the road that will ultimately get us there, get us where we need to be in 10 or 15 or 25 years. Earlier this year, you wrote about your attempt to represent an undocumented man rounded up by ICE. Could you tell us a little more about this experience? Oh boy, yeah. So the immigration detention system in the United States is a nightmare. And I think this is something that goes on right in people's backyards that a lot of us just don't know about. And if we do know about it, we don't have a full appreciation for just how horrific it is. My client in that situation, I mean, after the election and ICE really ramped up its activity all over the place and certainly, you know, in my region too, you know, they were just rounding people up, scooping them up out of the people that they never would have rounded up before, you know, people that are, that are sort of minding their own business and going to work and raising their kids and doing the kind of stuff that, that undocumented people do in the United States, not criminals. Uh, so they started scooping people up, you know, en masse for the first couple of months of the Trump administration, taking them away from their families. You know, basically when somebody gets, uh, somebody gets picked up by ICE, they disappear into a black hole. Right? And that's what happened to my client. He um, got picked up in, uh, in Indiana. He got taken to Boone County, Kentucky, which is right outside of Cincinnati. So it's about 90 minutes away from his, his family that he's trying to support there. Then he was there for a few months and was sick and was not receiving any treatment and you know has very little ability to communicate with the outside world. There's no staff at this jail that speaks Spanish. He barely spoke any English at all. And then after a couple of months, they decide they're just going to move him. And they move him without telling me, even though they know that I'm his counsel. Uh, they move him, of course, without telling his family. And, and by the way, in these facilities, you know, people are only allowed. These are folks that have not you know, committed any serious crime. They're locked up in the same place with people that are, that, you know, could be locked up for murder, or could be locked up for a lot worse things. And they're only allowed, I think it's something like 45 minutes a week to visit with their family, which, you know, again, the family members could be 90 minutes away or farther. And this is just the Boone County facility that we're talking about. Well, eventually, they just move him in the dead of night from Boone County to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and then from Wisconsin to, I think, Phoenix, Arizona, and then to from Phoenix to Virginia, and then from Virginia to Louisiana, and Louisiana back to his home country. And they're doing all this moving him around without telling me, without telling his family, and with really no ability for him to have any kind of voice whatsoever to make sure that he's getting due process or even just the you know basic human rights guarantees that we would, we would give to any inmate anywhere that was charged with any kind of crime or in fact fact, any prisoner of war. These, these folks have less in the way of rights and protections than people that are accused of the most heinous crimes. And it's, 
a pitiful shame that we do that to people that are just here trying to provide for their families. You know, and what we hear from from the right a lot is, well, you know, look, all you have to do is just come into the country the right way. Well, that wasn't really an option for my client. It's not really an option for um, many of the folks that are here uh, without docu- without proper documentation because they come from places that are failed states. You know, their villages are run. In the case of my client, his village was essentially run by a drug cartel. For him to get here the right way would require him bribing his way out. You know, assuming that you could even do that, there's still no guarantee that you get here and you get here legally. And so it's just a nightmare situation for these folks. And for them to, to go from one nightmare in their home country to, you know, coming here and then essentially being treated worse than the worst criminals we have and worse than prisoners of war is just frankly disgraceful. And I think we as a country are better than that. I think the immigration detention system that we have in the United States needs to be dismantled and start we need to start all over and and obviously that sort of dovetails with the the, the popular topics on immigration which is you know, the extension of DACA um, a pathway to citizenship I mean all that should happen as well but I think first and foremost we've got to do something about this wretched detention system that we have that is that is basically set up to profit off of the misery of people who came here seeking a better life So as you said, kind of the top priority recently has been helping DREAMers and extending DACA. And for over a decade now, we've seen Democrats and even a few Republicans push for some sort of DREAM legislation. And the majority of Americans support a pathway to citizenship for DREAMers, but all of the iterations we've seen of the DREAM Act only address a certain segment of the undocumented American population, those that our society deems worthy. Beyond supporting DREAMers, what would you do in Congress to support undocumented Americans, including those who don't qualify for programs like DACA or even DAPA? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's back to what we were just talking about. I mean, first and foremost is is dismantling that immigration detention system. It's insane what we do to people in that system. Secondarily, is is creating a meaningful pathway to citizenship. It's it's the stuff that you already touched on. Beyond that, it's providing oversight of an executive branch that has made it quite clear that. They they are basically working to keep brown people out of the country, right? I mean that's 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 been a pretty much a stated policy goal of this administration, and it's Congress's job to hold them accountable for that. It's Congress's job to ensure that that doesn't happen, that they don't achieve those policy goals, and that we really make this the land of opportunity for everybody. And I think our current Congress has done a very poor job of that. Our current Congress is basically letting this administration run roughshod over, you know, the values that American people have held dear for a really long time. And I think that this new wave of people that we're going to elect to Congress in 2018 needs to hold this administration accountable, particularly for doing ridiculous and meaningless things like rounding up harmless undocumented immigrants and sucking them into the nightmare world that is our immigration detention system. 
Criminal justice reform is a big part of your platform. You have a lot of great proposals abolishing the death penalty, abolishing private prisons, declassifying marijuana from the Schedule 1 category. Could you tell us about the fundamental problems of the criminal justice system and how you hope to comprehensively address them? Oh my god, that's yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> you know, that's that's uh, and and I mean there's so much that's wrong with that. I mean, obviously this is this has been, you know, my life's work in a lot of ways. Uh, I've been working in the criminal justice system for my entire career. A big part of what we have, and you touched on it, I mean, a big part of the fundamental problem that we have in the criminal justice system is that it's set up to profit off of the misery of other people. I mean, you know, if, you, if, if your listeners have not read the new Jim Crow yet, I expect that many of them have, but I, I mean, you, you know, you definitely should. If you haven't, it should be required reading for every American. You know, uh, Michelle Alexander talks in that book a lot about how you know, our modern carceral system is basically just an extension of slavery, right? So you have you have uh, slavery, and then slavery goes away, and um, all of a sudden we're 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 in need of this cheap we're a cheap source of labor that didn't exist before, and so what are we going to do? Well, we'll start. Let's start locking up black and brown people on mass, and that's that's essentially what the roots of of where we are today in the criminal justice system. So it's it's rotten at its core. But the for-profit motives that are involved in it, you know, where we see it the most frequently is with third-party healthcare providers. And I've worked countless cases in jails and in prisons where the you know inmates go in usually as a result of some sort of addiction problem or something secondary to an addiction problem. And they develop some sort of malady, they develop some sort of health condition and the jail has contracted with uh, a third-party healthcare provider that is trying to save as much money as possible and do the least amount of work to maintain the health of you know hundreds, sometimes thousands of inmates all at once, usually with just one physician at best, um, and that one physician could be assigned to multiple facilities. And with that profit motive at work, what you see is people die, right? You know, people die, people get debilitating injuries, people that they didn't need to have, people suffer unnecessarily. I mean, and, and so, you know, having those sort of fly-by-night con artist corporations involved in the criminal justice system is despicable and something that, w- that ought to be done away with. I think that at the heart of, I mean, we can't have a conversation about what's wrong with the criminal justice system without talking about what's wrong with the war on drugs, right? goes back to the point that I made earlier. I mean, the whole war on drugs drugs is sort of this racist scam designed to keep people incarcerated and get sources of free labor and all that good stuff, but it's mostly targeting black and brown people um, and always has been. You know, we've got to get to a point, and people are finally starting to talk about this now that the opioid crisis is affecting more of white America and more of rural America, right? But we're finally starting to talk about addiction in the sense that it is a public health problem and not a criminal justice problem. And that's a fundamental shift that has to happen if we're really going to make any kind of meaningful criminal justice reforms. I mean, I think that, you know, when you look at at most of the people that are locked up now, they're locked up because of dope in some way, shape, or form, right? They're locked up because of drugs. They're locked up because of uh, addiction problems that they have or somebody else has. You know, it's a pitiful shame. That is the way that we can continue to treat addiction in this country as though it's some sort of criminal moral failing rather than the the public health nightmare that it actually is. And and I I think part of our job as candidates in this, this new spate of candidates that's coming up 
is to make sure that our messaging is such that, you know, we are trying to effectuate this big cultural shift from talking about addiction as though it's a criminal problem and start talking about it as though it is a public health problem, because that's really what it is. And, and then we can start to come up with more effective strategies to deal with it. Something I really appreciate is your willingness to speak up for what is right and just, even if it isn't what's popular. But that, of course, can be a double-edged sword. You've said some things that I can imagine your opponents will use to attack you as the race goes on, one of the most notable being your defense of Antifa. I, for one, am happy to see a congressional candidate with a genuine understanding of the modern anti-fascist movement, but... I know that we're both in the minority on this issue. Can you explain <laughs> your position on this? I don't know that I can. I, I, it's not out of a, a degree of caution. I just think that this is so context-specific and so dependent on, on what is actually going on. I mean, I think that, you know, look, I don't advocate violence for any reason under any set of circumstances. But, you know, when you're talking about a, a modern Nazi movement, right? You're talking about a movement of people, and this is gaining steam because it's been given. They've been given permission to, you know, sort of come out of hiding. It used to be that you would call out a Nazi, you turn the lights out on a Nazi, and they they scatter, right? The, the cockroaches scatter when you turn the lights on, and now they're not scattering so much because they've been given permission to be out in the open and to do their Nazi things. And you turn the lights on, and they just stand there waving their little cockroach Nazi flags and saying, "Here we are, and we don't care." And I think that's bad, right? And I do think that it's important to not let that movement gather steam. We should be exploring ways to cut off Nazism, to cut off white supremacy, to cut off people that advocate outright ethnic cleansing and genocide in America. And I mean, let's that's, that's be clear, that's what we're talking about here. I mean, these are these are these, these folks, people like, like Matthew Heimbach and people like the other folks that orchestrated Charlottesville and are trying to put these things together all over the country. They want a white America. You know, these are folks that advocate genocide. They advocate ethnic cleansing. And they used to do it in, in sort of, you know, these sort of sly, under-the-radar ways. And now they're, they're being pretty open and pretty vocal about it. I think that we've got to allow for whatever strategy works to stop that movement before it gets any more out of control than it is. You know, when I look at Antifa, that's what I see them doing. There's there's somebody that I follow on Twitter that, that really summed it up very nicely. And you know, I think that his tweet was something to the effect of, here come the Nazis, and they say, we're going to gas the your favorite racial slur here, right? And we're going we're gonna to gas these people, we're going to exterminate all these people. And Antifa says, oh no, you're not. And then, you know, the mainstream media's reaction is to say, oh my gosh, there's so much hate on both sides, right? <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, and, and I, I think that's, it's a good way to, to sort of sum that up. You know, when it comes to protecting people of color, when it, become, when it comes to protecting vulnerable populations from being wiped out, when it comes to protecting, you know, people who need to be protected and who have been historically disadvantaged in the United States, and it, it comes to actually providing meaningful protection for those people, I'm not taking anything off the table. So I think that this debate gets into the bigger issue of legitimacy. 
state actors like law enforcement or even non-state actors that the state deems acceptable, like the white supremacists in Charlottesville, are able to commit violence against civilians and marginalized bodies with little to no legal repercussions. Now, I'm saying this as a private citizen. You, on the other hand, are a congressional candidate. So when you say rightfully that our system is rooted in white supremacy, it carries a different weight. How would you deal with this dynamic as a member of the House of Representatives? You know, that's the whole point of running for the House of Representatives, right? That's the whole point of running for office in a democracy is that you can get in and effectuate change. I think that there are two equally valid ways of trying to bring about change in society, right? And the one is to, like, you've got this great vehicle of American society and it's going the wrong direction and you see that it's going the wrong direction and you stand outside of that vehicle and you pound on it and you bang on it and you do whatever you can to try to convince the drivers to change that direction, right? That's activism and I think that that tends to work pretty well. The other way that you can do it is to um, try to jump into the vehicle and knock the driver out of the way and take the take control of the wheel yourself and make sure that it gets steered in the right direction. You're going to see this with this spate of candidates coming up in 2018 because there's a lot of good ones that want to get that have been on the outside and they've been banging on this machine for a long time and they want to get into it and steer it the right way because they, they've, they've come to the conclusion that that's something that is right for them to do at this moment, and that's where I am. In your district, Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton by 27 points, and the Republican, Trey Hollingsworth, whose seat you're currently seeking, defeated his Democratic opponent by 13 points. In Congress, Hollingsworth has voted in line with Trump almost precisely as expected given Trump's margin of victory. How do you hope to unseat Hollingsworth? We have developed a robust field program and I think that that's something that's that's I'm sitting here in in our third field office and we're still a year out from the election you know and I think that that's going to be really important to changing the dynamic it's not something that is not something that we had in 2016 and as you said the Democratic candidate for Congress did 14 points better than Hillary did on the ground here and they and she did that well I think because people in the district knew her they knew what she was about in a normal year where you don't have this Trump wave, that would have likely been enough to to win this district, right? We have to get out and we have to talk to people and we have to talk to them about what is really, if we have to talk to them where they are, right? You know, we have to talk to them about what is affecting them. Uh, we have to talk about real solutions to the real problems that people face. And we have to convey the message that we care about them. And that that, that is part and parcel of a robust field program. The people that I know in Indiana, the people that I grew up with, uh, the people that I've worked around and served for my entire career, if they know you, they're going to vote for you. Most of our voters here are not going to um, just show up and mindlessly pull the lever for any Republican or any Democrat, right? I I think it's more about making a personal connection with as many people as you possibly can. But that's only part of the equation. I think what's really, really important, and if you look at the 2016 campaign, you you can see this. You look at the the success of the Trump campaign and the success of the Sanders campaign. Both of those candidates were not status quo candidates. That's important. But more importantly is that they they were providing people with a path. And both of those candidates were very successful in my district and, and um, in my state. But they were providing people with a distinct path and saying, look, we've got a direction for you to go in to where it's not going to be 
more of the same for you. And Sanders's path was a direction forward. We're going to boldly go forward and no more tuition for public education and uh, universal health care and paid family medical leave and all those wonderful things. And Trump's path was a path backwards. Like, weren't things better in the 1950s? Let's go back to that, folks. And that's what we want to do. We're going to make America great again. You know, people respond to that. You know, we have to have boots on the ground. We have to have people knocking doors. We have to get into people's living rooms and have conversations with them. But more importantly than that, we have to, to give them a positive agenda, give them a path somewhere, and to talk very frankly and openly about what we believe in. I mean, in the, in the center of the country, in the heartland, in the Midwest, in Indiana, you know, for a long time with politics, I think we've sort of learned that we need to avoid the hot topics. Like, we can't talk about guns and abortion, and we can't talk about fair taxes and we can't talk about universal health care or whatever it is. We can we gotta avoid those hot button issues and run the most vanilla, milk toast, centrist campaign that we can possibly run, right? And that isn't working. I mean we're not winning elections that way. There's two major reasons for that. And one is that people in Indiana know when you're not being honest with them, people are predisposed to thinking that all politicians are liars anyway. If you go to them and you get in their living room and you don't talk about what you really believe in, they sense that, right? If you're using politician weasel words and you're trying to avoid talking about the stuff that, that really matters to people and you avoid talking about the principles that you actually stand for, people get people sense that, I think, on a visceral level. They don't like it. So we do ourselves a disservice in that way. But, but the bigger disservice that we do is that we can never convince anybody that we're actually right. We never get a chance to start planting the seeds. Let's assume we don't win in 2018. Let's assume there is no big blue wave. We've got to at least start planting the seeds of these progressive ideas that are going to take us into the future and keep us from being a third world country, we've got to at least plant those seeds so they'll grow in 2020 or 2022 or 2050 or whenever they grow. You know, and we can't do that. We can't plant those seeds. We can't change our culture and our conversations and all the stuff that we really need to do to get back on track in this country if we don't go and actually talk about what we believe in. And, and we've been sorely lacking in those kind of conversations, and I think it's it's beyond time to start having them. So recently, we have seen both Democratic and Republican members of Congress revealed to be sexual predators. Party leaders have declined to call for resignation instead suggesting ethics investigations that sort of kick the issue down the road to be dealt with later. How do you think that members of Congress should be responding to this crisis of sexual predation? Well, I'm going to give you a lawyer answer on that and to say that each one of those situations has its own set of facts. It's got its own set of merits. The allegations are very different in each one of these instances. And I don't think that you can come up with a one-size-fits-all type of solution, right? You know, and this is this is kind of me with my trial lawyer hat on and saying that, you know, you've got to examine the facts of each one of these situations and, and make a determination based on what you, you can reasonably know. Having said all that, it's obvious that there's a problem, right? That there's a bigger problem, that there's a systemic problem that affects not just Congress and not just Capitol Hill and not just government, but affects society at large. It's the patriarchy, it's toxic masculinity, it's whatever you want to call it. And that is a bigger ship, right? You know, that's a that's a bigger ship to try to get in and steer in the right direction. And I think 
you know, we're starting to do one of the encouraging things that's come out of the Me Too movement and and that has happened over the last few months is that you can see, despite the fact that we've got, you know, someone who is essentially a sexual predator in the office of the presidency and that we've, we, you know, we've got these leaders that uh, seem to care very little about women or, or women's issues, is that we've been able to, you know, women in particular have been able to change the culture and change the conversation to a degree on the ground, right? And so... Women are demanding demanding more accountability, and despite the fact that our elected leaders don't necessarily support that, we're seeing it happen. I think that trend is going in the right direction, and it's something that we need to see more of. And, and I think that we should do, you know, whatever that whatever we can do to provide more safeguards to women who might be in vulnerable positions, and to you know make sure that there is more accountability for men who are in positions of power. What advice would you give to millennials hoping to run for office? Well, don't be afraid to do it. You know, if I can do it, anybody can do it. That's my biggest piece of advice. And and, and don't be afraid to make mistakes. The best way you learn to do anything, at least this has been my experience, is just by doing it. Um, you know, I had no idea how to be a lawyer when I got out of law school, and I didn't learn that. Uh, there's no way I could have learned it out of a textbook. There's no way I could have learned it, you know, in any kind of academic fashion or in law school or what have you. There is just no way to learn how to do it except by doing it. And I think uh, that's true of a lot of things in life, and it's certainly true of running for office. What we see, I think, with a lot of good people uh, that would make good candidates and would make good elected leaders is that, you know, they wait and wait and wait until the time is just right and until they feel like they're educated enough because they're conscientious people, until they think that they know enough and they're savvy enough and they've met enough people and all that good stuff. And I, I you know, my biggest piece of advice would be don't wait um, because you will not learn it unless you jump in and do it. And we have such a need for good people in positions of power right now, we always had that need, of course, but uh, it's 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 a pronounced and profound need right now that we have for for good people at all levels of government to get involved and to save our democracy. And that sounds melodramatic, but it's really where we're at. There is such a profound need for those people to get involved that you cannot afford to wait. So, last question: How can folks get involved in your campaign? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. You know, go to our website. Obviously, it's www.cannonforindiana.com. There is a, a volunteer button. There is a, a donate button if you want to give us gobs and gobs of money. And I think that, that one of the most basic ways that people can do it is by spreading the word about, about the campaign, either on social media or, or just by word of mouth. Any and all support is, is helpful. And not just for us, but for all. There's a whole bunch of good candidates, as I've said before, that are running. Um, in 2018 all over the whole country. Give them your support. Go and research who is worthy of your support and help them however you can. If you can do it financially, great. If you want to go knock on doors, great. If you can phone bank, we can have people remotely phone bank from any place in the country. You know, we had volunteers phone banking for Virginia candidates for the special election, uh, you know, here in Indiana. And so this is something that we're all going to have to do together. Everybody's got a role. No role is necessarily more important than another. 
another. You know, everybody's got to work together and do this stuff. So anything, literally anything that you can do that you think you might want to do to get in and help out, we will gratefully receive your help. And I, I think that I can safely speak for lots of other good progressive candidates in the country when I say that. Okay, great. Well, thank you again so much for coming on to the podcast today. Thanks, Jordan. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is Dan Cannon, civil rights attorney and Democratic candidate for Indiana's 9th Congressional District. And I'm Jordan Valerie, editor-in-chief of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast, where I'll be speaking with Sam Jamal, Democratic candidate for California's 39th Congressional District. Thanks for listening.